Okay. Um, so, as, as we just prayed for for, for William, uh, you know, this, it's, that's uh, appreciate you uh, mentioning that. My my kids are are growing up as well too, and uh, it's wonderful and sad uh, because I look at them now and they're they're not little boys anymore. They they resemble men more than they do little boys. I have one about to go to college, and I just can't believe it. Uh, someone once told me, and it's the truest thing I think I've ever heard uh, in, in so far as this is concerned, is that the, the, he said, the, uh, the, the, the days drag on, but the years fly by. So, so, so true. So, so they're of age now where it seems like they, they have uh, even plenty of money. Uh, I don't remember having as much money as they have, uh, but they both have jobs. And, and I'm wondering if I, if I need to be charging them rent or something like that, because... <laughs> They, they both have jobs, and they're, they're making this money, um, and maybe I'm missing out on the secondary line of income here. So, so they're, they're pretty good at saving, but occasionally they do like to spend. Uh, they have money, but they still like to uh, be uh, cheap or greedy sometimes. Uh, I don't know. They, they want to, for instance, buy something from Amazon. Let's just say they want to buy something from Amazon. Uh, they know how to use my account... Because, of course, they don't have an account of their own where they pay for their own Prime service, so they, so they use mine. So they'll want to buy something and say, Dad, can you order this, and then I'll, I'll pay you back. Okay, and usually I'll, I'll, I'll agree to these terms. Uh, I, can, I can take the money right out of their accounts now. Uh, I can just, just like that. I, it's, uh, and so maybe I just need to start doing this on a regular basis. But what's odd about the transaction, let's just say they want to buy something for, for $23.59. They'll say, okay, go ahead and order that, and then you just go ahead and take the $20 out of my account. <laughs> How much? $20. It says the item is $23.59. They'll say, fine, take out $23. $23? You want the $0.59 cents too? I said, well, that's what it costs, right? Now, look, I know what you're thinking. You're, you're probably thinking, man, can't you just give him a break? Can't you just, uh, you know, throw him a bone here? Why, why do you have to milk your son, sons for a few cents? Aren't they, they close enough? Sure, I get it. But, but, it, but it's, it's the audacity. <laughs> the temerity, you know. They, they assume, yeah, dad can get the rest. That's close enough. And I, I would be doing them a disservice as a parent, right, if I didn't teach them these things. I, I want them to know that you've got to pay for the thing that you want. You've got to pay the full bill. And, if you, and if, you really, if you really want the thing that we're talking about, you won't mind paying the full bill. Anyway, so I pressed them. Oh, and by the way, don't forget the sales tax, too. They charge sales tax. And you know what most, most often they'll tell me is, you want me to pay for the tax? And I'll tell them, yes, why do you think I should have to pay for the tax, right? Yes, yes, they, they, they think I should have to pay for the tax. Apparently, there's some unwritten rule that uh, only the, the, the dad has to pay tax and not, uh, not the kids. So, in all honesty, sometimes I do give them a break, and I, I, I'll chip in for the thing that they're, they're looking for. Um, I'm nicer than I sound. Uh, but sometimes I'll make them pay the full amount, and, and I'm not going to let them short me. But uh, we're in a series right now. Where am I going with this? Where we're looking at the Apostles' Creed. And we're examining what each line of the creed means and, and why we confess it, why we believe it. And so we've reached the line in the creed that makes reference to his resurrection. Let me read it up uh, to that point, and we'll land on this one right here. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. There it is. Now, 
We believe that Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried, but we don't believe that's where the story ends. We believe that after he died, he rose up from the dead. Now, we spent a few weeks talking about his death and, and, and uh, that phrase, the descent into hell, and the implications of those two things. And one of the points I wanted to impress upon you was that when Jesus proclaimed, it is finished, right? It is finished. That meant it is finished. His suffering was over. Jesus completed the payment. Okay, but the creed is not over, right? It doesn't end there. Is, there, is, is everything finished? And it might cause you to ask or, or think, was, was everything really finished though. Did he have to rise from the dead too? Did he have to? So, so this is where we're going to pick it up, and, and, I'll, and I'll go ahead and pro- pose the question to you. First of all, as a bit of a review, when Jesus said it is finished, what exactly was it that he was finished? What was finished? When he said it is finished, what was finished? Defeating death? Payment. Payment was finished, and payment took the form of suffering, okay? Suffering was finished. The payment was complete. The debt, the debt that our sin incurred required justice. It required a payment. The wrath of, uh, uh, that, that God had against sin had to be satisfied, because remember, he's perfectly just, Perfect, perfect justice requires a payment for every infraction against the law. So the suffering he endured on the cross, this, the separation from God's favor that he endured on the cross, this was the payment that God's justice required. And when he proclaimed, it is finished, that effectively was the complete payment. There was no remaining sales tax, right, that needed to be paid. He wasn't just a few dollars short. It was paid in full. And the words he proclaimed on the cross proclaim that, that it is finished. So, when Jesus said it is finished, he was speaking about the debt. But when he said it is finished, he wasn't speaking to the whole redemptive process. Because when we speak of redemption, what are we talking about? What does redemption mean? The root word is redeem, right? So what does, what does that word mean? We, we, that's a word that we use a lot in, in Christian circles. What does it mean to redeem? What, is, what are we talking about when we're talking about redemption? What, is, what does it mean to redeem? He redeemed me. Redeemed, redeemed, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. What is what? It's not just that, no, it's not just that the debt is paid, but that you have then come back to a different standing. You have returned to a standing with God. A return? You're, no, you're doing good. You're doing a good job. Anyone, what does it mean to be redeemed? Say it again. I said, I think of the word exchange, like I'm redeeming a gift card, I'm redeeming a coupon, so I am giving, in our world, the retailer something in exchange for something back. So it's a transaction of sorts, right? Okay, redeemed? To make good? Oh yeah, that's, that's a, I like that one. Okay, I'm going to read for you a couple of definitions from Merriam-Webster. Its primary defi- definition means to buy back, to repurchase. Another definition that's really appropriate to our discussion here lists a definition of redeem as to repair or restore. To repair or to restore. 
Think of that language when we talk about I've been redeemed. I've been restored. Okay? So, so while the debt of sin was paid for, was the redemption? What Was the restorative process complete? Okay? Not quite. Not quite. There's certainly more to be done. So, so it might make you ask the question in terms of redemption, was the resurrection necessary? Or, or was the resurrection just a nice touch? Okay? If the crucifixion was required for the complete satisfaction of God's justice, what does the resurrection do? Okay? Or, or maybe better ask, what, is the what does the resurrection mean? Okay? Who wants to tell us that? What does the resurrection mean? Some of you had guesses earlier. I think that would be appropriate here. What does the resurrection mean? <laughs> that was defeating death. That was defeating death. Did you have something? God wins. That God wins. Oh, man, you know what? You're taking me back. Does anyone remember the, the Christian artist from years ago named Carmen? Oh, gosh. He had the song called The Champion. Do you remember this? Do you know the song I'm talking about? It was called The Champion. And it was, oh, it was, it was very gaudy and... and uh, it did something to my soul, though. It, it made me believe that Jesus was the winner, and he defeated the devil in a boxing match somehow. <laughs> Jesus is the champion! I remember crying. What, uh, what, what, does the, what does the resurrection mean? Anyone else? What does the resurrection mean? Will in the corner. Oh, man, you're going to make me run for this one here. Here we go. Hang on. No. Um. Oh, now, now I've lost my train of thought. It took all that time to come back here. <laughs> uh, it means that um, death, the curse has been broken. Okay. The curse has been broken. You guys are flirting with where I'm going with this. Very close. What does the resurrection mean? Okay, this is what we're going to talk about. This is, a, this, this is I'm glad that we're, we're kind of circling around it here, but we haven't hit it right on the, on the nose yet. Think about the resurrection like this. And admittedly, every illustration breaks down. But, but think about the resurrection in this manner. Back when I was much younger, uh, I was single and I was new to Nashville. And uh, not unlike a lot of people when they first come to this town, I, I scraped to get by, right? I lived in several apartments for several years that, that, that I was here. And then after those first few years, I had it in my head that maybe, just maybe, I could buy a house. Nothing fancy, of course, maybe a condo or something, a place that I could call my own. So when I first went to the bank to inquire about a loan, they, they, they took a look at my financial situation, and uh, they helped me assess whether or not I was in a position to buy a home. Many of you have gone through this process. And the first time I went to talk to them, they were, they were very frank with me, and the bank told me, no, we don't think you're ready to buy a home yet. We, we feel comfortable lending you maybe about $130. Okay. And of course, I wonder, what do I need to do? What do I need to do to be able to buy a house, to be able to put myself in a, in a position where I can buy a house? Okay, so they advised me on a couple of things. The first one, you need to reduce your debt first. We, we think you need to pay off your debt. And once you've paid off your debt, then, then you need to save up for a bit of a down payment. Okay? So you're probably laughing. You went into the bank looking, you had debt and no down payment. Yeah, I just thought I could show up and say, I'd like to buy a house. So see that the first step in being a homeowner was, was covering the debt. Covering the debt. And, and that's what I set about to do. I worked hard. I paid my bills. I worked down my debt. And eventually I got there. I paid off every last dollar of debt that I had. And let me tell you something. That was a happy day for me. I felt like I'd really accomplished something. I may, may have even yelled out a variation of, it is finished, right? 
I, I was, but was I finished? Was I ready to buy a house now? According to the bank? No, not yet. What, what remained? I still had the, the down payment, okay? Not only, not only did I have to erase my debt, it, it wasn't enough just to erase my debt. Erasing my debt only brought me up to zero. I was at zero. I, I was worth nothing, and it felt great. I wasn't worth a negative amount. I wasn't a positive amount, but I was worth nothing. Nothing rested comfortably at zero. Now, I needed to make effort to, to put myself in the black. I had to take steps to do something proactively to, to purchase a house. Okay? This is what the resurrection was. It wasn't a transaction. Think of it this way. It wasn't a transaction to service debt. It was a down payment. Okay? Remember a few weeks ago, if I'm not mistaken, we talked about this. Uh, if the only thing that was required for redemption was Christ's death, why couldn't Jesus have just magically showed up on Good Friday proclaiming that he was the Son of God and that, that he was there to suffer, to make payment for the sins of the world? He could have then just arranged for someone to, to have him crucified and that would be it. Would that have been sufficient? Why did Christ have to go through the trouble of, of being born as a man, live about 33 years, and then be crucified? What was he doing the first 32 years of his life? Okay? Remember this, and I'm certain you've heard me say this before. Yes, Jesus had to die for our sins, but he also had to live for our righteousness. And we always forget that part. Whenever, whenever we talk about, uh, whenever we think, imagine ourselves sharing our faith with somebody, we never forget the he died for your sins part. We never forget that. What we always fail to forget is, but he also lived for your righteousness. What am I talking about? In order to win, God, in order to win God's favor, in order to have the favor of God, in order for you to be presented before God, it's not enough just to erase the debt. There has to be proactive measures to get you in the black because remember, it wasn't enough for Jesus just to be sinless, to be holy, to be in the presence of God, to be in fellowship with God. You can't just be sinless. You have to be sinless and really, really, really righteous. Okay? That's what holiness requires. You can't just be not bad. You have to be good. It's not, a, it's not enough for you just to not sin but you have to actively obey him and be righteous. I think we talked about this verse a couple weeks ago as well too, Micah 6, 8. And it perfectly illustrates what I'm talking about. He has told you, O man, Israel, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? What does the Lord require of you? Okay, now what does he list? It's not just a bunch of, you know, well, don't murder, don't kill, don't lie. No, it's, these, are, these are things that righteousness requires. Do justice love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. You see that? Those aren't things that are just saying, well, don't do bad things. No, it's telling you to do righteousness, to do good things proactively. What is required is, is that we don't just do bad stuff, but we have to do the good stuff too. It's not just not sinning. It's actively being righteous. That's why Jesus couldn't come and just die for your sins, because he had to live for your righteousness too. He had to get you in the black. He didn't just have to bring you to zero. He had to get you in the black. Okay, listen to this. Because of the resurrection, we can believe that the Spirit justified Jesus 
by raising him from the dead. It was a proclamation of Jesus's righteousness. Here's what I mean by that. We're told in, in, uh, in God's word that the wages of sin is death, right? For the wages of sin is death. Death is the punishment for sin. So you see, the father was not pleased to leave his son in the grave. Why? Because the son was sinless. And, and so by raising him from the dead, he justified him. He proclaimed that his son was, was not guilty. As if the father said, death? Death, death is what sinners get. Death, death is what non-righteous people get. Okay? That's what sinners get. And my son is not a sinner. He's 100% righteous. So the resurrection, the father justified him and made his declaration that he is righteous. And because he was justified, because he was justified and declared righteous, do you know what that does for us? Not, not only does he service our debt, but he gives us his righteousness too. Okay? This is why we have in Romans 4, 22 to 25. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised him from the dead, uh, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. For that proclamation that we are righteous because he is righteous, we are righteous because that's been draped over us as a, as a blanket, okay? So because he was justified in the resurrection, we are justified too, all right? See, in essence, the crucifixion was half the transactions. Our sins were laid upon him and he paid for them completely, paid in full. We gave him our sin, but what else happened in that transaction? We gave him our sin and we received his his righteousness. And his righteousness was affirmed at the resurrection. It was a resurrection where Christ was in essence proclaimed not guilty and righteous, and by extension, so were you. Does that make sense? I want to stop right there and just make, make sure that everyone gets a hold of that. Because again, it, for a lot of people, it's like, wait a minute, this is, this is brand new information. Because for most of our lives, we've only heard about the dying for your sins part and not the living for your, your righteousness. Yeah. So the resurrection was just for righteousness. It wasn't for the sin part. Exactly right. Righteousness, uh, or uh, the resurrection, was the proclamation of righteousness. And like, like we've talked about on Thursday mornings before, too, what the, what the resurrection does when we say justifies, it means that you can, you can trust everything that Jesus ever said. Because remember, if Jesus had one teeny tiny iota of a sin in him, then he stays in the ground because he's paying for sin, okay? And, and he is a sinful person if he just has one little tiny thing. But because he is sinless and righteous, it, it's not like, oh, let's, 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 uh, let's put the cherry on top and let's have him rise from the dead. No, the grave could not keep him down because he was sinless and righteous. And that's why he sprung up out of the grave, because there's nothing in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the earth that could hold him down in the grave, because he was sinless and righteous. Okay? Todd, uh, hang on, come back there. This, I, I record these, uh, these lessons, as some of you know, and I want to make sure. Is, is there any significance to the three days in the ground? So what is that? We talked a little bit about this, I, I think, in our, our men's class, too, didn't we? Three days? Yeah, Todd's missed the last couple. <laughs> Why three days? What does three days tell us? I, yeah, 
I think the three days um, was tied to the culture. Well, two things. One, Jesus said he was going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Number one is the word of God said. Right. And then two, the culture at that time, uh, people didn't really believe somebody was really dead until after three days. And at that point, the soul leaves the body in their culture. Then they know they're really dead, good and dead. Yeah. I, I use that phrase too, good and dead. Good and dead. And it's true because, again, right now, you know, for instance, if, uh, you know, in, in, our, in our hospitals and, and uh, we, we can measure heart rate and we can measure, uh, you know, brain activity and we know we, the doctor can definitively say, uh, this person is deceased. Well, back then, there was a very common belief that, that uh, you, you weren't really dead. You know, your spirit didn't depart from you until three days, on the third day. Uh, and so this was essentially an affirmation that, yes, Jesus was really dead. He died. He died. But he couldn't stay dead because, again, death is the wages of sin. And his righteousness and his sinlessness is what what sprung him out of the grave, all right? Let me, uh, a couple more questions here. Here we go. Back here first. This is Corey. A lot of times when you hear people talk about this concept of us receiving righteousness, they use the phrase, it's imputed to us, which is, you kind of think of that as maybe as a legal term, a legal term. What is the, maybe talk about what's the significance of that mean when, we're, when his righteousness is, is imputed. Yeah. That's a great question. It's a, it's a, uh, a, a theological term that we use a lot. Imputed righteousness. Do you know what else is imputed to you? The sin of Adam. Okay, the sin of Adam is imputed to you. And what that, what that means is, is that Adam was your perfect representative. You know, a lot of us would say, you know what, I wasn't in the garden. I didn't sin. No, but Adam perfectly represented you. And because he perfectly represented you, his sin was therefore imputed to you. Which the... the the other side of that coin is, is that you weren't on the cross either. But because Jesus perfectly represented you as the second Adam, his righteousness was therefore imputed to you. We received Adam's sin imputed to us, but now we receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to you like a legal declaration. And it is good as done. And it's, a, it's, a, it's as if a court of law and, and, and God the Father says, by the righteousness of Jesus Christ that is imputed to you, you are now righteous. And, and the, the beautiful thing about that is, is that no matter what we think our standing is, you, 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 can't be, you can't have a better legal standing before God the Father than you do right now because you have the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ draped over you as a robe, and you'll never improve upon it. And that's the beautiful thing about imputed righteousness. There's no improving upon it. You have it. You have it. Is that... Answer your question? Yeah, I think it's just, you hear it talk about that in those terms Yeah, absolutely. And again, that's what gives you right standing, that imputed righteousness. Jan, did you have something? I was just going to say that uh, Jesus raised Lazarus, and he waited four days, and basically for the same reason. And so that happened just before Jesus died, too. So that kind of set the set the tone for the three-day thing. 
Exactly right. Uh, Lazarus was in the tomb for four days. And uh, my favorite part about that account is that uh, when he came to Mary and Martha and they, and they said, uh, uh, it's been four days, Jesus, in the old King James, it says, but Jesus, he stinketh. Because again, after four days, they're like, you can't go to the tomb. You can't tell, you can't open the door. Jesus, do you know what you're doing here? Yeah, he's good and dead. And again, what, what, you, what we tend to think about Lazarus was, uh, was that, oh, this was yet another miracle to show us uh, how strong he was and how powerful. Well, yes, because this was sort of his, Lazarus was sort of the coming out party. You know, up until that point, a lot of the miracles that Jesus did, I don't know if you've, you've noticed this in the, in the Gospels, where Jesus says, you know, you know uh, be healed. Now don't tell anyone. You know why? Because this hour had not yet arrived. This one, Lazarus, was a spectacle. Everyone saw it. And from that moment on, and you can read later on, where it says they tried to kill Lazarus. And this was a question that also came up in our Thursday morning group, was that uh, why is it that, uh, that John is the only gospel that records uh, the resurrection of Lazarus. You know, why, didn't, why wasn't it covered in Matthew, Mark, and Luke? And that was a good question, I thought. And, you know, there's, there's all kinds of technical answers to that where we say, well, there, you know, each of the gospel writers had a different purpose, you know, in writing it. And so it, it shouldn't be a surprise when one is, is not mentioned over another. But I just started doing some reading, and uh, one, one, uh, one guy theorized the idea that uh, because they were trying to kill Lazarus, by the fact that he was raised from the dead because they were trying to kill him, that perhaps the first three gospel writers, they deliberately didn't write about Lazarus because his life was under threat. Because this was, again, the big coming out party for Jesus that, oh my word, look what he can do. And if he can do this, Rome is not going to have that. He threatens our position. He threatens our security as, as, uh, as teachers, as, as uh, scribes and Pharisees. So we have to kill Jesus. We have to kill Lazarus. And again, what that was doing is, yes, not only proclaiming that, that, uh, that Jesus had power over death, but he was also giving us a foretaste of something. He was giving us a, a, a preview of what was to happen ultimately. Because again, you have to think about this. Lazarus was brought up out of the grave, and he lived, presumably for another, what, 20, 25 years? And then guess what? He died again. What was the point of that? I know. I feel your pain. The point of that was that he was giving us a foretaste, a preview of what would become of you and me ultimately. That's the next thing that we're going we're to get into a little bit, okay? Um, the resurrection was, was Christ's justification or his vindication, God's pronouncement of his son's innocence and righteousness. So without his resurrection... Jesus remains in the ground and under the curse of sin. Okay, the way, remember what we said, the wages of sin is death. The, 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 the resurrection was God's pronouncement of no, my son will not remain in the ground and under the curse of sin. Okay, if he remains in the ground, if Jesus remains in the ground, then he's no different than any other leader that came along proclaiming something special. You could argue all day long that there have been others who have led a sinless life, though I wouldn't believe you, Right? Like, maybe, maybe you can make a case Muhammad was sinless, but he wasn't justified. You know, Buddha wasn't justified. Confucius, he's still in the ground. Joseph Smith of the Mormons, dead and buried. Uh, Charles Russell, Jehovah's Witnesses, they, they all remain dead and in the ground. It pleased God to justify none of them. If Christ remains in the ground, 
then he remains unjustified as well. And if he's unjustified, then guess what? We are too. We are unjustified. So what hope do we have? Because he was justified, thank God Almighty, we are justified too. We stand complete with him, okay? Let's consider what else the resurrection means. We've discussed what the resurrection means. Now let's discuss a, a bit about what it does, okay? Going back to our illustration of, of buying a house, it's one thing to pay off your debt, uh, but, but what, is the, what is it the down payment does? Why does the lender, in most cases anyway, require you to put money down on the house? Why are they doing that? What are they asking you for? Some skin in the game. Okay, they, they, they want to protect their own investment, right? And they want to make sure you're serious. They want to make sure you're serious. Okay, it serves as, as a, a insurance of sorts. If I'm saying that I'm, I'm going I'm to pay back everything that I'm about to borrow, it's the first statement that says how serious I am about it. It serves as a deposit or guarantee that I'm going to do what I say I'm going to do, and that is pay off this, this debt that I'm signing my life away. The resurrection of Christ, this is the Father's guarantee to me that one day I will stand with Christ resurrected. Okay, listen to this. This is from 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 22. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits, I want you to narrow on that, on, uh, on that, that word, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, Adam, original sin imputed, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man, righteousness imputed. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ, the second Adam, all will be made alive. So in a very real sense, Christ's resurrection is a deposit. It's the first fruits, like the, the guarantee that, that one day you and I uh, will be brothers in Christ. Raised from the dead just like he was. Now listen to the language that Jesus uses after he was resurrected, when he appeared to Mary Magdalene. He says this in John chapter 20, verse 17. Do, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them. Go to my brothers, he says. Go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father, and your Father, Mary, your Father, to my God and your God, Mary. He's saying, look, we're, we're brothers. We're brothers now, brothers and sisters, okay? We're united. Here are the keys of the house, is what he's saying to Mary. When we read Revelation 21 about Christ making all things new, his resurrection is the deposit that ensures that we will be made new as well. And like I said, if he, if he stays in the ground, we can't believe it. But because he was resurrected, we can believe everything that he says, including what, what all his apostles, whom he appointed to speak on his behalf, say. And th John the Apostle tells us that we too will be made new, that we'll stand complete, uh, as complete as he was. We're like him. We're being made like him. And he will be faithful to complete the work that he began in you. He will do it. Okay, now, uh, does that make sense? So far, so good? All right. I know some of you can probably relate to this. Uh, last illustration here. Um, because you go through the same thing I do, and that is after a long day at work, your, your commute home is a time to, to decompress a little bit, right? And I realize that's a rapidly changing uh, practice here in Nashville because, uh, and a lot of people, number one, work from home. A lot of people don't even go into an office anymore. And, and uh, I have a great commute now. I want you to know how great my commute is from my house to, to the church. It's fantastic. It's all back roads. I'll often see deer, turkeys, 
and uh, you know, farmland, because I'm going through the back roads of, uh, of Franklin and into Brentwood. It's wonderful. But back when I worked in, in publishing, I had to commute all the way down to the airport and, and back, and it was terrible. I hated it. Sometimes an hour or more sitting in traffic. And, and that stop and go traffic will, will just drain you. Even though you're, you're effectively sitting in a chair, right? It's still draining. There's still something draining about it. So after, I would, you know, particularly back then, not as much now, but I remember back then, I would come home, I would park the car in the garage, and I get out of the car, I, I walk through the back door of, of the garage, through the laundry room, and I can open the kitchen door, and immediately I can survey what is happening in the immediate area of the kitchen, right? Uh, and this, this, one, this one day in particular, I remember, this was a few years ago, I remember it distinctly made an impression upon me. I open the door, and what do I see? Number one, two dogs come running up to me like I am they're so happy I'm alive and they're jumping for joy and they're like I'm so we're so glad you're here number two I see younger son roller skating around the house in in a big loop and my older son is doing a dance He's, no music, but he's just dancing because he saw it on a video game and he was imitating that and I look over at Tracy and she's like so without saying a word, I can look, I can survey, and I can know this, this night's going to be a rambunctious night, okay? There were other times I would come home, I'd, I'd, I'd open up that, that, uh, that laundry room door, and I would look into the kitchen, and uh, the, the dogs wouldn't even come up to me. The dogs were just kind of sit, sitting over there, you know, just look up at me and say, you, you better go back to the office. And I see one kid on the counter, you know, trying to do his homework while his mom is trying to get him to solve for X. And he's like, I can't do this. I don't want to. Why? School is stupid. And it's just, I can tell, you know what? It's going to be a long night. I, without even saying a word, I can tell there's an indicator of what's going on in the room as to how the rest of my night is going to, is going to go. Okay? The resurrection is the indicator. The resurrection, almost without saying a word, just by the action in and of itself, is the indicator. It's the first indicator. It tells us the everything else, how everything else is ultimately going to go. It's what gives us hope and shapes our, our disposition. Okay, when Paul uses that word, first fruits, he's telling us about our indicator. He's telling us that this is the first indication of something that's been promised about and to us for a long, long time, okay? He's talking about the resurrection and using, using a word like first fruits. Now, for those of you that were here, uh, I preached a few weeks back, and I talked about the true vine. Do you remember when I talked about the true vine, for those of you that were here? That's, a, that's an expression that, that Jesus uses in that upper room discourse in John, and a lot of us might think that Jesus was like, oh, that's a nice metaphor. I'm like a vine. No, what's he doing? Does anyone know? He's drawing all the way back to the Old Testament, because that language, vine and vineyard, that's Old Testament language, because what happened? Here is uh, Isaiah 5-7. For the vineyard of the Lord, I want you to think of this as, as, uh, as Israel. Oh, that's what, that's what it says here. <laughs> For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting, and he looked for justice. So he's looking out over this vineyard that is called Israel. He looked for justice, and behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, and behold, an outcry. The Lord wanted justice and righteousness out of Israel. He wanted, he wanted a fruitful vineyard. But what, what did they produce? They, they produced bloodshed. So, so what did the Lord do to remedy this? You have to keep going. Uh, Isaiah 11.1 1 says this. 
there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Okay? See that in, con in contrast to that unfruitful vineyard of Israel? Something, someone from the stump of Jesse would come and bear fruit. Keep going through the book of Isaiah. Uh, we can do this all day. Isaiah 27, 6. In days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. Think about how many times you hear about fruit of the Spirit or, or the vineyard in the New Testament. These aren't just convenient metaphors. He's talking about this right here. So we could keep going with these, these references to fruit in Isaiah that, that though Israel failed to produce fruit, one day a Savior would come and he would produce fruit and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. So this is why when, when Paul and Galatians start talking about fruit of the Spirit, that's not just a convenient metaphor. You're the branches. He is the faithful vineyard, the faithful vine. You are the offshoots that are now producing fruit in a way that Israel could not do. Okay? So do you see what the resurrection does here? As Paul called it, the resurrection was, was first fruits, the first of many to come. Isaiah prof prophesied about it, saying that, that this would happen. So the resurrection had to take place to fulfill that promise. The fruit that was promised is, is on the way. There's more to come, but this is the first of it. It's already happening. You're already seeing those shoots. But here's the deposit. Here's the guarantee. His resurrection was the deposit or the guarantee, the indicator, that he would do the same in you so that you would stand, as he stood, complete and glorified. That's what's on the way for you. And this is the, the guarantee. Okay? So, so here's, here's quick takeaways about the resurrection. The resurrection tells us that Jesus wasn't just sinless, but he was sinless and righteous. Holy. Okay? And we need him to be both of those things if he's going to represent us before the Father. And the resurrection also tells us our fate. Okay? It's an indicator, the first indicator. It's the first fruit of, of what's to come. It's the deposit that guarantees our place with and before the Father. Not left in the ground to die, but raised just as he was. Okay? And with that, let me open it up for some questions, but I'll leave you with Romans 6.5. So if, if we have been united with him in a death like his, he died for our sins, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We're righteous like he is. And that's what raises us from the ground. His righteousness imputed to us. What other questions do you have? Comments? Thoughts? Yes, sir. So when I think about the Apostles' Creed, it, it sort of tells the story of the dissension, right? You know, seated at the right hand of Father, uh, you know, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered, died, right? And then this is, although you, you might have said that the grave is the beginning of the ascension, right? And so then, you know, ascended, you know, resurrected, ascended, rose to the Father back again, right? Is it fair to assume that as, like, the ascension happens, um, also the, the positives of that are also kind of imputed on us, right? This idea that as Christ again ascended back into his throne, our power also increased, right? With the spirit and, you know, and beyond that. Yeah, because what, what, uh, what, what's, what's what, what awaits us in the creed here? When we start talking about the spirit, 
the Holy Spirit, very definitively start talking about the Spirit, because now we are, we are, by the power of the Holy Spirit, enjoying and partaking of the glorification of Christ. And again, and, and this is something we, a few of us asked, a few of you asked me about a couple weeks ago after class, and it's the idea, well, you have to remember that the Holy Spirit wasn't invented in the New Testament. He didn't arrive. He always was, and he always, always was about the business of, of, uh, of saving. You were always saved to the power of the, the Holy Spirit was always about the regenerative work of, of restoring a soul. But his, his redemptive work did take on a new role because in the Old Testament, he would, he would visit David and, 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 and bring, about, uh, bring about his will, all in preparation for, for the arrival of Christ. Well, now in the New Testament, it's not that the Holy Spirit goes to this person or that person or that group of people to accomplish his redemptive work. Now the Holy Spirit goes to every believer, everyone. There's an outpouring, as it says in Joel 2, and then Acts 2 is the fulfillment of Joel 2, that outpouring, which now we are all about the business of the redemptive work of Christ. We're all partaking in that glory now. All of us, every last believer, now gets to enjoy the redemptive work and the glorification of Jesus. Make sense? Yeah? Okay. <laughs> Sometimes there's, I'll come to Justin and then, then, then to Will. So then, almost, almost to uh, summarize, the, the death of Christ and was the redemption of, like, in our way, our own death is now redeemed. And then in, in his life, his resurrection, we're now able to become branches off of his vine and able to make fruits, like ma- able to make the fruits of the spirit. Is that like in our life, like the life versus death almost? Yeah, that's a linear thought. That's a good linear thought. Okay, we, we, are, we are starting to make fruit, right? Uh, but we will not be completely glorified as, as Jesus was until he finishes that, that work. And that, that work, sanctification tells us, will take the rest of our lives. But we're already seeing that fruit, which is what, what Paul is talking about in Galatians, uh, Galatians 5, when he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, that this is now not uh, an option for us, these are things that will be visibly evident in us because of the spirit that's already at work in us. In other words, we can say that I, uh, I, I don't have the, the gift of, of, uh, of teaching. I don't have the gift of, of prophecy, uh, but we can't opt out of any of the fruits of the spirit. We can't say, well, I don't have self-control. I didn't receive that fruit. Yes, you did. <laughs> In the Holy Spirit, you have it. You have to have love, joy, peace, patience, kind, all of those. Now, some of us are better at self-control than others. Some of us are better at patience than others. But it's, it's, a, it's, it's something that will be, slowly but surely, each day, every passing day, more and more made after the image of Christ. And Christ was the perfect representation of those fruits. But they are coming out on us starting today. If you're in Christ, those fruits are coming out of you today. All right? So, uh, Will? So I actually have two um, quick questions. One, the first one actually kind of dovetails off of what Justin was asking about the fruits and bearing fruits and how the scripture says that um, this will cause us to bear fruits all over the world. And so I was wondering to what extent that that fruit, like when it's talking about fruits, if it's talking about gospel, spiritual change in people's hearts and then thereby their spiritual lives in the world where you can visibly see a spiritual change. Um, but on the other hand, how, how much does it have to do with, like, 
physical changes in society because of course I from what I've read in some places the the scientific practice grew out of the monasteries and and this is something that has provided technologies that have improved lives of not only the you know believing church um, and clergy but the whole world in general um, so I was wondering if that is something that is kind of there um, and then the second one was does the resurrection of Tabitha in the book of Acts where Peter raises her from the dead add anything to the theology of the resurrection? Nothing is added. Uh, I'm going to answer the second question first. Nothing is added to the theology of the resurrection. What, uh, what you have in, in Acts is, again, the, uh, it's, the, it's the starting, it's the, uh, the onset of the church. And Peter was an apostle. So Peter was given a direct and immediate calling by Christ in person to carry out his, uh, his, his word, to, to, to start building the church. And the visible evidence of that was miraculous signs. Okay, so Peter went forth doing miraculous signs like the other apostles did as they left, uh, and one of them was being able to heal or raise people from the dead in, in, uh, in, in the case of, uh, of Peter here. Uh, the tricky part here is, is that uh, myself included, believe that those, those specific gifts ended at the first century with the apostles because, again, it was the apostles that Christ directly and immediately empowered to do his work on his behalf, okay, uh, to start the church. And so there was an extraordinary measure of, of miraculous deeds and signs that were happening at the onset of the church, okay? So it doesn't change the theology of the resurrection. It, it, uh, it um, uh, validates it even. It validates it further. Now, your first question, I think I know what you're asking here, is uh, the advances that we see in, in uh, scientific, scientific world or, or, or in, in things like that, is that evidence of the fruits of the Spirit? Uh, the fruit, when you talk about the language of, of fruit in the New Testament and even in the Old Testament, that's a uh, language that's specifically reserved for God's people. Okay? So when we talk about the fruits of the Spirit, that is something that we see in God's people. What you're talking about, though, is something that we call common grace. And that we see common grace, the, the sun shines on, on the wicked and the un, unwicked alike. And so, yes, if there's anything good, what we, we learn about in James is that if there's anything good, every good and pleasing gift is from above, from the Father of lights, okay? So, in other words, there's all kinds of good things happening in science in, uh, in, in uh, you name it, the media, any, every industry, whether there's Christians in it or not, if there's something good that happens, it's because God is good, and that's his common grace. His special grace, though, his special grace is reserved for his people, for the, those who are in Christ, and uh, those people are the ones that produce the fruits of the Spirit. Make sense? All right, good. Uh, with that, 11.30, if you haven't already gone to get your little kitties, uh, go ahead and do that now. Why, uh, but let me close in prayer first. And again, as always, if you have more questions, feel free to come ask me. I'm happy to entertain those. Dear Heavenly Father, again, we thank you. Thank you for the resurrection. Thank you for what it means. And thank you for what it does. Thank you that you've, uh, you've given it to us and you have applied it to us, the work of Christ, so that one day we may stand complete with Christ before your presence. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Go in God's peace.